America is at maximum crisis from being poisoned for 50 years. This past weekend, the New York Times busted Ron DeSantis for traveling around the country on the private jets of morbidly rich right-wingers, often in ways that prevent the public from ever finding out who's showering these gifts upon him, presumably in expectation of future government favors. Our country has been poisoned, and if we don't remove the poison and start using the antidote, America may soon become completely unrecognizable as a free nation. It's taken 50 years, but we're now at the point of maximum crisis. First came the poison of big money corrupting politics. Back in 1971, Lewis Powell thought he saw a communist threat in Ralph Nader. Literally, he named him in his infamous manifesto, the Powell Memo, arguing that calls to regulate auto safety with seatbelts and soft dashboards Nader's book, Unsafe at Any Speed, were simply the first steps towards a socialist takeover of America. Quote, Perhaps the single most effective antagonist of American business, Powell wrote, is Ralph Nader, who, thanks largely to the media, has become a legend in his own time and an idol to millions of Americans. Nader, who wrote the foreword to my book, The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream, and people like Rachel Carson with the environmental movement, uh, her book, Silent Spring, had inspired, threatened, Powell believed, the core of America's free enterprise system. Regulation, Powell asserted, he was a tobacco law- lawyer, was just one step short of a total Stalinist takeover of America. The overriding first need, Powell wrote, is for businessmen to recognize that the ultimate issue may be survival survival of what we call the free enterprise system and all that this means for the strength and prosperity of America and the freedom of our people. The following year, Richard Nixon put Powell on the Supreme Court, where he personally authored the 1978 Boston v. Bellotti decision that claimed corporations are persons with rights under the Bill of Rights, and corporate money in politics wasn't bribery or corruption, as it had been under the law since the founding of the Republic, but merely an exercise of First Amendment-protected free speech. Money wasn't money, it was speech. That decision greased the path for the later doubling down with Citizens United and produced a tsunami of corporate money that flooded into the GOP in 1980. At the time, Democrats were largely funded by labor unions. Their embrace of corporate money would come in 1992 with Bill Clinton's New Democrats, floating Ronald Reagan and his neoliberal Reagan revolution into power. Since then, big business has discovered that the investment of a few million dollars into buying politicians could produce billions or even trillions in returns. When morbidly rich hedge fund guys poured a million or so dollars into Kirsten Sinema's coffers, for example, she demanded tax loopholes be inserted into the Inflation Reduction Act that saved them $14 billion. That's one hell of a return on investment, and similar deals are being made every day now. The entire GOP and the corporate problem-solver Democrats are all in on the scam. Whether it's money from fossil fuel, big pharma, big chemical, big banking, big airlines, big telecom, big tech, or any other billion-dollar industry in America, the entire GOP and a handful of Democrats in the House and Senate have their hands out. Literally, no other developed country in the world allows this democracy-killing corruption that five Republicans on the Supreme Court legalized. Next came poisonous memes designed to turn working people against each other. 
The morbidly rich and the corporations that made them that way hate labor unions, a.k.a. democracy in the workplace. Unions reduce their profits and inhibit their ability to maximally exploit their workers. Unionized workers demand accountability, a word anathema to corporations. Reagan promoted the idea that union bosses were exploiting union members for their own advantage, and even though the argument made no sense, unions don't have stock or bonus systems like corporations, so union bosses get a salary just like everybody else. It was picked up by the media that was itself run by corporations unhappy about being unionized. TV dramas and cop shows in the 1980s and 90s routinely featured corrupt or mobbed-up union bosses as part of their plots, while state after state adopted right-to-work-for-less legislation authorized by a Republican Congress over Harry Truman's veto in 1947 that made it difficult for unions to survive. Right-wing radio and Fox so-called news echoed the message, and since Reagan's election, we've seen union representation go from about a third of all Americans to around 6% in the private workplace today. Along with the poisoning death of our unions came the destruction of the American middle class. When Reagan came into office, some estimates put the middle class, a single family's wage earner being able to buy a home, a car, take a vacation, put kids through school and save for retirement or have a pension, at around 60 to 65% of American families. Today it's under 45%. Conservatives then said about poisoning American race relations. This is not to say everything was hunky-dory, but in the 1960s and 70s we were making real progress. Politicians from both parties, with the broad support of the American people, passed voting and civil rights laws. We made good-faith efforts to integrate schools and workplaces. And even television shows in the 1990s, led by Norman Lear's genius, brought positive, albeit sometimes embarrassing, embarrassingly stereotypical, and humanizing portrayals of non-white and non-straight people to white TV, people's TV screens in a big way for the first time. First came Nixon's Southern strategy, openly welcoming Southern white racists into the GOP. Next, tragically, in 1988, George H.W. Bush proved that appealing to white racism could still win elections with his notorious Willie Horton ads, setting the stage for two generations of race-baiting Republican politics that reached its zenith with Donald Trump's racist declaration about Mexican rapists when he announced his candidacy in 2015. The right continues this strategy today, promoting racial and religious fear and hate with Muslim bans, generating hysteria about brown refugees on our southern border, and Ron DeSantis and other Republican demagogues fighting any true portrayals of American history in our schools. Hustlers with help from the GOP poisoned Christianity next. Reagan's campaign hired born-again alcoholic George W. Bush to work out a deal to integrate the evangelical movement, which prior to 1980 was non-political and even supported abortion rights, into the GOP. Jerry Falwell became the face of this church-and-state merger, spewing his own brand of poison, a role recently picked up by Billy Graham's son. The week after 9-11, Falwell and Pat Robertson solemnly agreed on TV that the attack on the Twin Towers was merely their God's punishment for America-tolerating sin. What we saw on Tuesday, Falwell uh, said on Pat Robertson's TV show, as terrible as it is, would be minus, could be minuscule if, in fact, God continues to lift the curtain and allow the enemies of America to give us probably what we deserve. Robertson replied, Jerry, that's my feeling. I think we've just seen the antechamber to terror. We haven't even begun to see what they can do to the, to the major population.
Falwell then doubled down. The abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, all of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. Robertson, nodding vigorously, added, I totally concur, and the problem is we have adopted that agenda at the highest levels of our government. And now we have evangelists like the newly reinvented Mike Flynn, a convicted and pardoned foreign agent who allegedly spied on us from Russia, for Russia from within the White House, traveling the country today calling, essentially, for replacing our democracy with an authoritarian Christian government like in Russia and Hungary and Germany and Italy in the past. If we are going to have one nation under God, Flynn tells audiences repeatedly, which we must, we have to have one religion. One nation under God and one religion under God, right? Forget about the teachings of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the parable of the goats and sheep in Matthew 25. Get yourself an AR-15 like Flynn recently strutted with on stage. The NRA and weapons manufacturers then pour the poison, poured the poison of guns across our land. Using the money Republicans on the Supreme Court authorized with the Bilotti and Citizens United decisions, combined with Scalia's twisted Heller decision, the Supreme Court and the NRA have unleashed an epidemic of gun violence in America. The average of all countries in the world is 9.86 guns per 100 civilians. The United States is highest in the world at 120.5 guns per 100 people. Yemen, which is in the middle of a war with Saudi Arabia and dealing with an internal insurgency, comes in second at 52.8. No other nation is even close. Even Afghanistan and Iraq average around 20 deadly weapons in the hands of every 100 people. European and Asian countries range from 10 to as low as one gun per 100 people. Over on Fox so-called news, one brilliant idea to deal with the slaughter of our children in our schools was to issue ballistic blankets to every school. This is how sick and twisted the Republicans taking money from the gun industry and their allies have become. Twenty years ago, car accidents were the leading killer of children and youth. Today, it's guns. This year, almost 11 out of every 100,000 children died from guns, while only 8 per 100,000 died from car crashes. Nothing in America kills more of our children than the 400 million guns in which our country is awash and that have made billions in profits for the weapons industry and its senior executives. White supremacists are doing their best to poison our police and military. There's an active movement among white supremacist groups to spread the poison of fascism, racism, and hate to the government employees who carry the authority to legally kill people. As ABC News reported last March, quote, Based on investigations between 2016 and 2020, agents and analysts with the FBI's division in San Antonio concluded that white supremacists and other right-wing extremists would very likely seek affiliation with military and law enforcement entities in furtherance of their ideologies, according to a confidential intelligence assessment issued late last month. Semi-fascist MAGA Republicans are poisoning our system of governance. President Biden rightly called out the MAGA faction of the Republican Party. They are actively working to undermine our republic and replace it with their beloved autocratic strongman models of Orban's Hungary, Bolsonaro's Brazil, and Putin's Russia. They're even promoting Hungary and Orban on Fox so-called news, doing fawning specials from Budapest featuring the big man himself. CPAC-based 
their conference there just a few weeks ago, and Orban spoke about his white supremacist soft fascism. He calls it Christian nationalism to enthusiastic applause from the Republican audience. In multiple Republican-controlled states, legislators have not only made it harder to vote, particularly for low-income people, minorities, and college students, while openly working to terrorize black voters. Ron DeSantis paraded a group of mostly black illegal voters in Florida just before the 2020 election, resulting in a collapse of black turnout that kept him in the office. While Texas politicians have similarly promoted far and wide their arrests of black, quote, felon voters. It's all about trying to terrify black people away from the polls, if less severe efforts like outlawing souls to the polls by ending Sunday voting aren't enough to swing elections to the GOP. The Brennan Center documents how, as of January 14, legislators in at least 27 states have introduced, pre-filed, or carried over 250 bills with restrictive voting provisions. Dozens are now law. Meanwhile, Republican appointees on the Supreme Court let Republican secretaries of state cancel the voter registrations of over 20 million Americans in the last dozen years with their Ohio decision legalizing caging. The Supreme Court has also allowed Republican secretaries of state to reduce the number of voting machines and voting locations, particularly in black, Hispanic, and college town neighborhoods, to force people wanting to vote into long, discouraging lines. Since they gutted the Voting Rights Act, Republican governors have closed over 2,000 polling places nationwide, mostly in black and Hispanic communities. And they're poisoning our social and news media. In early 1944, the New York Times asked Vice President Henry Wallace to, as Wallace noted, write a piece answering the following questions. What is a fascist? How many fascists have we? How dangerous are they? Vice President Wallace's answer to those questions was published in the New York Times on April 9, 1944, at the height of the war against the Axis powers of Germany and Japan. The really dangerous American fascists, Wallace wrote, are not those who are hooked up directly or indirectly with the Axis. The FBI has its finger on those. The dangerous American fascist is the man who wants to do in the United States in an American way what Hitler did in Germany in a Prussian way. As if he had a time machine and could see the conservative media landscape today, Wallace continued, The American fascist would prefer not to use violence. His method is to poison the channels of public information. With a fascist, the problem is never how best to present the truth to the public, but how best to use the news to deceive the public into giving the fascist and his group more money and more power. Today, CNN is moving to the hard right, purging itself of voices willing to call out the GOP's embrace of fascism. There's a network of nearly 1,300 websites purporting to be those of local newspapers but are really right-wing propaganda operations and dozens of actual right-wing local newspapers that are often stuck for free in people's newspapers, uh, mailboxes. Putin, Trump, Orban, Xi, and other autocrats are trying to poison democracies worldwide. Donald Trump famously embraced autocrats, dictators, sheikhs, and killers while snubbing leaders of democracies and working to destroy NATO and the United Nations. His family recently received a $2 billion gift from the dictator of Saudi Arabia, and God knows how many billions MBS wired into one of Trump's personal offshore accounts or laundered through the live golf tournaments. Meanwhile, Russian and Chinese intelligence services run disinformation campaigns that fill social media with lies 
and information designed to tear democracies apart. They're having considerable success in their efforts, including putting Trump in the White House in 2016 and pushing through Brexit. Republicans in Congress are even openly opposing Ukraine in their valiant battle against Russia's terrorist campaign. Most recently, it was 11 Republican senators and 57 Republican members of the House who proudly voted with Putin over America and Ukraine. Rand Paul, who secretly carried a stash of documents to Russia on behalf of Donald Trump to hand-deliver to Putin's intelligence service, even argued that we should end the Espionage Act, while his Republican colleagues are demanding Congress defund the FBI. Next year, we can deliver the antidote to all this GOP poison. This isn't the first time conservative racists and fascists have poisoned America. The oligarchs of the Confederacy did it in the first half of the 19th century, and progressive President Abraham Lincoln defeated them in the Civil War. And the first third of the 20th century was haunted by the rise of the Klan and the Republican Great Depression, until progressive President Franklin Roosevelt declared political war on them, saying, They hate me, and I welcome their hatred. As FDR and his Vice President Henry Wallace showed us, the most effective way to reverse the effects of semi-fascist poison in the bloodstream of our body politic is for progressives to take power and put both the nation and the middle class back together. FDR, Truman, and Eisenhower, two Democrats and a Republican, renewed the faith of the American people in the government our founders created and many died to give us. They taught us that civic engagement, voting, and participation in our political system is the best antidote to semi-fascist poison. Forty years of Reaganism, as I lay out in my new book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, is best remedied by purging right-wing poisoners from political power and then taking active steps to rebuild our nation. Steps that Republicans and a handful of sellout Democrats have fought tooth and nail in their service to spreading the semi-fascist poison of giant corporations and the morbidly rich. They profit from keeping working people's wages and benefits low, exploiting student debt, and forcing our public schools into crisis with bizarre CRT laws and book bans. Time is short, and both the danger of fascism and the opportunity to renew America are at our doorsteps. We must all double-check our voter registration. They can be challenged by Republicans even in blue states. And do everything we can to wake up friends and neighbors to this very real danger to our republic. Tag, you're it.